morning. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 6. St. Luke chapter 6, you know, we've been going in Matthew through the uh, Beatitudes, and we finished the, those last week, but Luke has also uh, recorded another incident when our Lord taught, not the Sermon on the Mount, but it's often referred to as the Sermon on the Plain, as very similar teachings to what he gave uh, that's recorded in Matthew 5, but there are some uh, distinct things brought out in Luke chapter 6, and one is the, you might say, the negative attitudes, uh, the woes. Christ in uh, Luke 6.20 sets forth uh, several of the Beatitudes that he'd already taught. He re-emphasized them. There's a little bit of difference uh, aspect to some of them. But then he also gave the woes. He uh, uh, said there's certain things that you can have by God's grace that will be a blessing. There's other things that you need to be aware of uh, and be uh, on guard against. And so we're going to be looking at those here just in these next few verses of Luke chapter 6. All of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you now to open your word to us, and Lord, as our brother prayed earlier, open our hearts to your word and our minds, that we might understand, receive, believe, and obey your word. Guide us and direct us, we pray, Lord, give us grace to hear your voice speaking to us this day from the Holy Scriptures. And we pray, Lord, that it wouldn't just be a casual hearing, but that you would really take root in our hearts and minds and bring forth good fruit for your glory and for our good. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, in Luke chapter 6, you know, we have these, these woes that are listed. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full. Woe to you who laugh. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. And they correspond to what he just said beginning in verse 20. Uh, the blessings, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now in Matthew he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, and here he speaks directly to his disciples and said, blessed are you poor without qualification. Uh, but it you know, can be understood as scripture interprets scripture, poor in spirit, but also poor in this world. Because the Bible has a lot to say about wealth and poverty. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. In verse 25, Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Uh, and then, Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. But then, Woe to you when all, all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. And so well, these have to be taken in context and develop
you laugh, you're not pleasing to God. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's talking about those who are all those things, rich, full, laughing, uh, and well praised by men. Apart from God, that's really what he's talking about. Uh, this first woe is, woe unto you that are rich, for you have received your reward. Uh, if you remember some of the, the warnings that were given in Scripture, uh, the, uh, the story of Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, Luke has a lot to say about wealth that is ungodly. turn there. This is a sobering passage. It's amazing how many times people, how much people labor to say, oh, this is just a parable. It's not really a story. And, you know, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, because the rich man ends up going to, to hell. And Lazarus is taken up to heaven, into Abraham's bosom, we're told. And people say, oh, well, that's just a parable. That's not really, you know, there's no such thing, etc., etc. Find another parable where somebody is actually named in it as being a historical person. You won't. Uh, here Jesus actually names a person and says his name was Lazarus. And I believe where Jesus is giving us absolute true history here. But also letting us see, you might say, beyond the veil of his present life. So in Luke chapter 16, at verse 19, there we read, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. So he was rich and well-fed. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. So Lazarus wasn't strong enough to apparently walk, and so people carried him and thought, well, we'll put him by the front door of the gate into the courtyard of, of this rich man, uh, and maybe, you know, when his visitors are coming and going, they'll do something for Lazarus. This doesn't look like they did much, but Lazarus was placed there desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. When they swept the table off, whatever was on it, Lazarus was hoping maybe they'd throw it out the gate where he could get some food. Uh, and then he says, moreover, the dog came and licked his sores. And someone pointed out that actually seems to be the only comfort he received. Now, the dogs weren't necessarily trying to minister to him, but... They were the only ones seemed to be interested in him, but not for selfless reasons, probably. And then Jesus goes on and says in verse 22, So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. So we get some insight as to what uh, Hades is for the, the unsaved. Place of torment and uh, fire and no water. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, 
that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to them, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. This was spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ, who did rise from the dead. So we have this story. Uh, we're not told that Lazarus went to heaven because he was poor. And it's pretty clear that we're told, not told that the rich man went to Hades because he was rich, merely rich. Very clearly he had lived his life with indifference, uh, without any care for Lazarus or others. Back in Luke chapter 12, we see our Lord had quite a bit to say about this. In Luke chapter 12, at the uh, 16th verse, here we're told, this is a parable because the scripture tells us, then he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. This is Luke 12, 16, now verse 17. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, I love that, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Apparently he wasn't selling his crops, he was just hoarding them. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Then our Lord adds, So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Then he goes on and talks to the apostles about the, the need to trust God for your wealth and for your provision. So our Lord had quite a bit to say about these things. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, lest we uh, get a kind of a tilted version of this to get it out of perspective in the book of Deuteronomy in the 8th chapter God actually warns Israel about the fact that they were going to have wealth he doesn't forbid them having wealth note what he says here at verse 8 um, excuse me uh, verse 6 he says, therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God, this is Deuteronomy 8, 6, to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig, and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, and here's the warning, then you shall, well, begins the warning, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. So what's your response to be to God granting you a measure of wealth and prosperity? You shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. So you give thanks for your blessings. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, 
and his statutes which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, meaning the house of slavery, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions with manna, which your fathers did not know. That he might humble you. And that Well, he said, you know, it, it itself is not any benefit or, or any curse if it's used correctly. But he says, if you have money, use it. That when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. That's an interesting verse. Then uh, he says, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? So Jesus is here saying, you know, how you manage your money is an indication of where your heart is. Uh, and if you just, you know, whatever you have, you just spend on yourself or you just, uh, without any concern for the glory of God, then there's a problem here. And he said, you know, use your money to... to help people. That's really, I think, what he was saying earlier. Uh, but he says you need to be faithful with what you have because it's not yours. Everything you have is on loan to you from God. It's his money. You're a steward of it. That's why this application follows the story of the unjust steward, the one who was supposed to manage his master's wealth. And that's an interesting parable uh, in and of itself. That we, one of these days we'll have to go through it and look at it. But Jesus is saying, if you're not faithful in the things that are least, how are you going to be faithful in other things? So he says um, in verse 12, and if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, 
Who will give you what is your own? Talking about God's providence. But then he says this. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Alright, so if all your life is, is designed solely with the idea of acquiring wealth without reference to God, Jesus said, don't, don't fool yourself. If that's what you're about, then don't say you're God's servant. Uh, you cannot serve God and mammon. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard these things, and they derided him. They didn't like it. They were, the old King James says they were covetous. The Greek is literally, they loved silver. Okay, They were lovers of money. And he said to them, so they're deriding, and they go, oh, how foolish, what's he talking about? And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. That is, you want people to think you're righteous or right with God, because it's all in front of people. He said, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So here we see this counterintuitive teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you can't go by what men say is great. You know, it says in Scripture that men will praise you when you do good to yourself. You know, they're, they're great. If they see somebody else living a selfish life, they're great with that. They, they'll say, wow, you're really wise. Look what you've done. Going to tear down those old barns. Huh? I heard, hey, that's really great. You're really wise, you know. Uh, or, you know, if this guy on your gate, Lazarus, was a godly man, he wouldn't be in that condition. And who are you to take your children's inheritance and give it to some beggar who probably got there just by being dissolute and wicked in his life? So don't worry about him, okay? He's basically reaping what he sowed, etc., etc. So men will praise you if you do right to yourself or do good to yourself. priorities based on what God has said. So we do have the wealth that's given to us by God for the sake of his covenant. And so we need to recognize that. <clears throat> in 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Now godliness, that is true piety, loving God and loving others, not the whole Carry nothing out. You know, you're not taking it with you. You've heard probably the jokes and the stories about the guy loaded up his briefcase with gold because he was gonna, you know, angel came to get him and he wanted to take something with him and so he somehow got permission. It's just a silly story. But when he got to heaven and he got at the gate, he said, well, we need to inspect what you brought. And he opened it up and it's a suitcase full of gold bricks. And supposedly the story is St. Peter looked at it and said, you brought pavement? <laughs> so we, we, the actual truth, though, of God's word is you're not taking anything with you. It gets left behind. Let's say those who work hard and acquire wealth in a godly manner. Paul's not condemning that, and that's not condemned anywhere in the Bible. He's not saying those who labor diligently in their vocation, and by that they increase their wealth, 
and they use it for godly purposes, and they give their children an inheritance, etc. He's not condemning that. But he said those who desire to be rich, that is, they make that their goal in life, fall into temptation. Why? Because the temptation is to compromise. Well, I can't go to church on Sunday because I have to work. You know, I got money, etc., etc. Paul says they fall into temptation. Uh, and a snare. A snare, you know what a snare is? You guys know how to catch rabbits, probably. Some of you gentlemen probably have done it, okay? Uh, or other animals. When you snare an animal, basically you make sure that animal's not going anywhere. Okay? You're going to hold it back. Now the Bible talks about the wicked being held by the cords of their own sins. And those who would be rich, that is, who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation. That's a temptation to compromise godly principles. Uh, and a snare, they get held back in life. They think they're doing great because they're you know, bringing in all kinds of funds. Uh, but they're really snared. They're not progressing in the way they should be. They're like the rich man who, uh, in Lazarus. The rich man thought he was doing great. The guy that was going to build barns thought he was doing great. But neither one of those men were rich toward God. So Paul said, those who would be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lust. And lust, you know, by the way, the word epithumia is the Greek word translated lust. It also is sometimes called concupiscence, okay, uh, the older word, uh, and, uh, or sometimes just covetousness. The tenth commandment is, is, thou shalt not covet, literally in the Hebrew and in the Greek translation. is sometimes translated with the idea that it's a good thing because it means intense desire. Our Lord Jesus Christ, when he was getting ready to have the final Passover with his disciples, said to them, with desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The word he used there was epithumia, intense desire. Intense desire is not bad. You know, it's like water running in a channel. It's great. But what happens when the, the channel breaks or the water overflows, causes destruction and death. And so that's what lust is. Lust is when the intense desires that we ought to have for the things of God, for his word, for his church, for God's glory, when those things break the bonds and we've been, uh, we give ourselves over to selfishness, that's where the English word lust now means something bad. And actually that word lust in, in English wasn't always bad in the uh, uh, 1662 prayer book in the Psalter. It actually goes back before that. Uh, it talks about lusty men. And it, it, it men was what men of desire, those who were being filled with purpose. We don't use that term now too often, except in, uh, if you use, you know, if you're an Anglican and use the prayer book. But uh, you have to know what that means because it's not commending wicked lust or desire. It's just saying men of desire. And see, that's why, you know, if I may say, probably know this, we're not Buddhist, all right? 
you know, Buddhism says you have to divest yourself of all desire because desire brings suffering. And so uh, you've got to go through all these uh, disciplines and all these things. I remember my son Noah talking to a, a professed Buddhist one time, and he's done this more than once. But he asked the guy, he said, well, what do you do to achieve, you know, this uh, enlightened state, you know, to get where you have no desire? And the guy named off all the disciplines he had to do. Fasting, meditation, study, blah, 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 you, you know, you name it. And then we'll look at it and says, wow, you must really have to want to have that, huh? And the guy goes, oh, yeah. And then it dawned on the guy what Noah just said. You know, it's basically saying, you really have to have intense desire, don't you, in order to go after that. And the guy realized, oh, yeah, it's inescapable. We are creatures of desire. You are a creature of desire. You want to get your desires on the right track. Okay, you want to build up the walls of the channel so that the desire runs in the right courses. And what does it do then? You know, I grew up on a farm. I know what happens when water stays in its course, goes through the ditches, gets out in the fields, and produces crops. Wonderful stuff. Okay, but boy, if a uh, levee breaks or if a ditch broke, I remember we were out there shoveling, and uh, um, I actually do know how to use a shovel, but don't tell anyone. Okay. Uh, <laughs> They wouldn't believe me anyway, probably. But I remember, you know, we had to fix it because it would just do a lot of damage and what it was supposed to do didn't happen. So a lot of people's lives are when they give themselves over to pleasure and to uh, sinful lust. You are a creature of desire. You need to start desiring the right things. You're to love the Lord your God, what? With all your, all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the things we ought to be desiring. So Paul warns, and he says, they fall into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money, Paul says, is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money. It doesn't say money itself is anything. It's just dirt that shines, you know, silver and gold back in the old days. It doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. I think it's popularly misquoted, doesn't it, though? Money is the root of all evil. No, that's not what it says. The love of money. So we talked about the, the Pharisees when they had that, that term. It says they loved money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some, having strayed from the faith in their greediness, or have done so, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That is, at the end of their days, they look back, whether in time or eternity, and say, what a fool I was. In Ephesians... Chapter 5, at verses 5 through 7, Paul warns about those who are not really heirs of the kingdom. He says, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So those who are just given over to the love of money, and to acquiring ungodly wealth or wealth for ungodly purposes. Uh, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Then Paul gives this warning also, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. 1 Corinthians 7.31, Paul talks to those who, uh, who labor in this world. He says, and those who use this world is not misusing it. Well, the form of this world is passing away. That is, if you have a vocation, pursue it. Pursue it. Don't misuse it, though. Use it for the glory of God. 
In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. So sometimes wealthy people don't have a whole lot of peace, okay? Keeps the locksmiths busy, though, I hear, uh, you know. Um, but Jesus said, don't lay up your treasures upon earth. He doesn't say you can't have any wealth. You know, even though Judas was the one that kept the bag, Jesus, they did have a bag of money. And if you remember at the, at the final Passover, when Judas went out to betray Jesus, the other disciples, when they saw Judas leave, it says they thought he, Jesus had told them maybe to go give an offering to the poor. So Jesus had money. People ministered to uh, him and his disciples. With actually some of the ladies that helped the Lord uh, in his ministry, they're named. But they gave alms to the poor. You know, often wonder, huh, I wonder, remember the widow that gave her last two little mites? I wonder if they did something for her. We're just not told. We don't know. But the Lord noticed it. You can be sure he did something, either providentially or directly. But here we're told, don't lay up treasures for yourself upon earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So where's your wealth being stored? Okay? Uh, <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians, uh, excuse me, in Mark chapter 10, an important passage you may know. This is given in, in the other synoptic gospels. The rich young ruler that came to Jesus. Say, if this isn't the Apostle Paul, it's certainly someone that probably knew him because a lot of this young man's life parallels some of the things Paul said about having a good conscience uh, you know, from his youth and the fact that it was the Tenth Commandment that brought conviction to him. So this is a similar incident. The rich young man is not named, but in Mark chapter 10 at verse 17, we read, Now as he was going, that is Jesus, as he was going out, on the road, one came running and knelt before him. So this is a young man with uh, desire, and he's diligent. He comes running to Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, some have said, and I think correctly so, there may be a fundamental error in this young man's thinking right here, thinking that eternal life is earned by our works. But it's not necessarily a bad question, uh, because the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? And they told him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved in your house. So he comes to Jesus running, kneels down in front of him, shows reverence, and then he addresses him as, good teacher. And there's a little flattery in that that our Lord dealt with. But he says, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Jesus, as a man, recognized that. He gave the glory to God the Father. Others have said, go that route, here it is. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. That has to do with theft and other things. Uh, honor your father and your mother. Those are the second table. Most of the second table. Jesus omits one specific commandment. That he's going to bring up. So he says, you know the commandments and your dealings with others follow God's law. You, want to, you have to do that perfectly, but if you want to go that route, here's how you do it. 
By the way, no one can do that. All right? None of us keep God's law perfectly. That's the whole point. And he answered and said to him, that is the rich young ruler answered and said to Jesus, Teacher, all, all these things I have kept from my youth. And this is why I have hope for this young man, historically. And I, I kind of think we're going to see him in glory. Because it says, then Jesus looking at him, loved him. That's a pretty outstanding statement. All right. Jesus loved him. Perhaps it was his simplicity. Perhaps it, his, it was his youthful zeal. Uh, whatever it was, Jesus loved him. Because the young man said, I've kept all these from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. And literally, the original is... In English, we have to translate things somewhat, you might say, in the English word order. But in the original Greek text here, what Jesus is saying is, uh, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me, having taken up the cross. The cross was the last word Jesus said to him in that sentence. But he was sad at this word. And I think Mark, in the original text there, is referring, the word cross is all of a sudden, the guy what? The cross was reserved for the basest of criminals. It was uh, reserved basically for those that uh, were just evil off the scale. Thieves, murderers, you name it. Uh, and also the law said whoever is hanged from a tree is accursed of God. So Jesus now speaks of the cross. This young man knew what, what it meant to be crucified. The Romans, they, were, they crucified plenty of people in Palestine uh, before this time. And so any, any uh, Hebrew that grew up, whether in Galilee or Judean down around Jerusalem. They knew what it meant to see someone crucified. That's what the Romans did. And so when Jesus said, come follow me, having taken up the cross, give, give away all your wealth. And then we're told, he went away, he was sad at that word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This young man was coveting his own property. You go, what? How can you do that? Because you have it on loan from God. Jesus had the right to ask this young man to do that. He had the right to tell him to do that. The young man went away because he didn't understand that all the wealth that he had acquired or been given, and we don't have told if he inherited it or worked for it, but all of that, he wasn't holding it as from God. And so it's, it's funny, you know, we, we can actually covet our own possessions if we don't hold them as from God and be willing to use them according to God's word. So here he goes away, sad. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his word as well. We probably are too, somewhat. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, they're comfortable, they're secure. They don't have to trust God for their next meal or for their rent or whatever it is they're in need of. Uh, they don't have to pray. They think, well, we've got it all. So Jesus is saying there's a tendency when God gives us or gives people wealth for them to begin to rely upon it. I've often said, you know, I think the reason why we print eagles on our money, if you notice on your dollar bills and coins, there's usually an eagle there somewhere, because it flies away, all right? Uh, and get used to that. 
It doesn't abide in your pocket or in your bank account or in your family even sometimes for that long. But Jesus lets them know, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. So again, Jesus isn't condemning wealth here. Because God, we've already read it, God gives wealth to his people when they labor diligently. He gives them the means of acquiring it. Uh, Paul, the passage we read in Timothy, when he told that those who are uh, rich in this life, that they're to help others with it, and they're not to, uh, just to covet their own wealth. So he, Paul didn't write and say, oh, Timothy, tell all the rich people that they need to get rid of all their wealth. Uh, that's not what God commands, but not to trust in it. And wealth can be deceitful. Remember the parable of the sower when Jesus talked about the things that choked the word and made it unprofitable. He said, uh, when it, he likened it to seed, the good seed sown among thorns. And when he described what the thorns were, he said, you know, the, the lusts and cares of this life or of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. They grow up together and choke the word and uh, it brings no fruit uh, to bear. And that's, that's a, a failed life there he's describing. So Jesus then says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The apostles are listening to this. And, you know, Peter and John, you know, they had their own fishing business. They, they had some measure of wealth. And the other apostles probably were, were okay. You know, they weren't in, impoverished. Uh, then they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. So Jesus is saying, even a rich man can be saved, right? God can change his heart. You can let him keep his wealth and just change his heart so he doesn't covet it that he begins to use it for God's glory and for the good of God's people and, and to help others and to give God thanks. You know, Paul also said uh, in writing to Timothy, I just quoted it a little bit ago, but in 1 Timothy 6 at 17, that's where he says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. So he doesn't say you have to get rid of everything you own. He's just saying, don't be haughty. Don't get stuck up because you got more money than others. And there's a tendency for that to happen. And don't fool yourself and think you're incapable of having that occur. That's why Paul said, command them. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. Don't be arrogant. Nor trust in uncertain riches. Like I just mentioned, it flies away. But in the living God. And then know what Paul says. Who gives you've been able to acquire some wealth, land, house, whatever it is, thank God for it. Praise his name. Use it for his glory, but recognize it's his. He gave it to you for the little while you're on this earth. God gives us all things richly to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works. That's the real wealth. That's the treasure stored in heaven. Ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. I've heard the story how they catch monkeys. I don't know if it's absolutely true. I've heard it several times. You know, they, they carve out a tree and they make a little hole and they stick a banana inside and the monkey reaches in, grabs them, but he can't get it out. Because when he makes a fist, his hand won't fit out back out the hole. And what I've read, and I've read this multiple times, I've just never seen, never seen a video on YouTube of it yet. Uh, so we can't verify 
But the, the story is, is that they're able to just to go up and capture the monkey. And these are people that eat monkeys that do this, all right? Uh, they're able to catch him that way because the monkey won't let go of the banana. If he'd let go of it, he could pull his hand out and escape. But that comes to mind when I read this passage, that if you're going to lay hold on eternal life, well, what are you grasping on to? What are you holding on to? Because if you don't learn to have an open hand with what God has given to you, it doesn't mean become a bad steward. It means honor God, be faithful in that which is least. God will entrust to you the true riches. But don't be grasping on to wealth, thinking that that's my security. I can't, if I lose that, what's going to happen to me? I don't know. You'd be in God's hands. That that's the God that's promised to provide for you and take care of you. Sometimes, no matter how diligent we are, our wealth flies away. We lose it. So Paul said, doesn't condemn having wealth. He simply says, command those who are rich not to be haughty, but basically to use it to help others and to give God glory. And that by helping others, I don't mean donating it to televangelists or going broke because uh, some preacher's trying to talk you out of what's in your wallet. Use your money wisely. You're the one that will give an account for it. Read the Bible and see how should I be using my wealth. That's what you need to do. Search the scriptures. All right? You can lay up some, you know, an inheritance for your children. You can enjoy what God has given to you. But do it as unto the Lord. And that's really what, what the scripture is saying. When Jesus warns, woe unto those uh, who are rich... For they have received their consolation. Those are people who have received wealth, but not as a stewardship, not as something to manage for God's glory, but in a selfish manner. And so Christ warns about that. Uh, and so he tells us that uh, there's a woe attached to wealth if we use it in a wicked way. <clears throat> and when we think of the poor, you know, the Bible has a lot to say. James talks about the, that the poor in this world are rich in faith. In Galatians 2.10, Paul said when he met with the apostles and they were commend, they, they commended him, and as he was getting ready to go back out and preach the gospel, the other apostles said to him, and this is uh, Galatians 2.10, he said they, they exhorted us to remember the poor. They said when you're going out preaching, look to the poor. Take care of them if you have opportunity. And Paul said, which thing we were forward to do. They weren't just trying to gather up all the rich people you know, in Asia Minor or in Rome or something like that. The gospel is to be preached to the poor. In 2 Corinthians 8-9, Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, and by the way, Corinth was a very wealthy city. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. that ye through his poverty might be rich. So if it seems hard, like, I don't know if I can do this. Look to Jesus. Just say, Lord, what would you have me to do? Everything I have belongs to you to begin with. How do you want me to use it? Lord, thank you for giving me good things to enjoy. Help me to use them for your glory so I can even enjoy them more, seeing the good that, that you're willing to bring about through me being diligent and serving you. It's all by grace. And... When we give an offering, when we help someone, we should be doing it out of gratitude because of what Jesus did for us and what he is doing for us. And our inheritance, our life, really, it's hidden with God in Christ. It's in heaven. And so you need to recognize that that's where my life is. We're just passing through here. God gives us things, makes us comfortable, comes with trials, comes with tribulations, but we give him all the glory and the praise. So may God bless you. 
And if you're here today and thinking like, well, I think I'm kind of rich. Well, then give God thanks. You just heard it. Don't get haughty. Don't think like, well, I'm better than others. You're not. You got it because God entrusted it into your care. He gave you the ability to gather wealth. That's why you have it. So give him glory and give him thanks and then use it for his glory. Uh, according to his word, don't get suckered out of your money by religious hucksters. You know, and you don't need to become a Marxist. And, you know, generally the liberals are always interested in everybody else becoming poor, it seems. But, uh, you know, just use your money wisely for God's glory to help those as you have opportunity. And give him thanks and praise for everything. And for the real treasure that we have, which isn't our money, it's our salvation in Christ that we could know God, the only true God. Jesus Christ. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray you would help us to avoid this woe that you speak of in Scripture. And we give you thanks for all the good things we enjoy, but most of all, Lord, for saving us from our sins, giving us fellowship with your church, with your people, Lord. We thank you. We do love your people, and we ask you to increase our love for each other even more. Lord, as you give us wealth, help us to be diligent in using it for your glory. Uh, and wisely, Lord, and help us to labor diligently in our vocations and callings, Lord, uh, from you. And we thank you that you do give us power to, to get wealth, Lord, for the sake of your covenant. But help us, we pray, not to be haughty or proud or to think we did it in our own strength and power. But help us, Lord, to love you and to love your people. Guide us and direct us on all these things. For we ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.